Hello everybody, my name is Dada Veda Pragyananda and today I would like to, to talk with you about something which is affecting all of us, it's the, the crisis of the, our civilization, it's a, it's a crisis of economy, a crisis of ecology, of politics, it's like we live in a time when we're really not sure what the future is going to be like and I know that that there have been many presentations, you can find a million on the internet, uh, everybody has a solution for the problem. And so here's one more um, you can add to the mix and, and, and you can evaluate it according to the merit of what I'm going to say. So today's crisis is one of, especially we're feeling it economically, uh, in the developed world we have a crisis of even the, the richest economies of Europe and America. And in the underdeveloped world, we still have a situation where half the population lives on, on a, just even $2 a day or less. Is it? So we have quite a, a work or task to, to do if we want to, to address this, just the economic problem, or to speak of other problems that are affecting us. So, for the economic problem, basically, most of the, the solutions that are offered are usually offered within the context of the prevailing system that we have today. So, if there's an economic problem, then one political party says they want to lower the taxes and balance the budget, then another political party says, no, we want to stimulate the economy, we want to increase the spending of the government, and so there are different arguments supporting both. But these are the, the maybe we can say they're like band-aid solutions working within the context of the same system that has actually created the problem. So the first thing that we have to do is to really look at the fundamental structures that we have today and evaluate them and ask whether they have to be eternal or not. In the last century, there was a huge ideological battle between proponents of free market capitalism on one hand and the proponents of Marxism, Marxist socialism or, or communism as they called it. So this, this was the, the huge um, battle that went on and, and uh, the world almost was um, incinerated on the basis of, of the, the differences that the different sides had. But as the 1990 came about, then the Marxist challenge more or less collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union and its uh, satellite states in Eastern Europe. And the people who support the free market, uh, the, the Western countries, they proclaimed their their victory. But that victory uh, is beginning to look a little shallow because if, if we cannot even provide employment for everyone and we cannot provide the, the basic necessities of life in, in the richest countries, and if we cannot address the, the still remaining poverty in the poor countries, what, what does that say about um, our, our system? So let's look at this system. Is it eternal? Is, is the, 
the capitalist system eternal, even though Marxism has collapsed, it, is capitalism something that we have to live with forever? And, and you know, this uh, people have been searching for solutions, even they have been searching for solutions even outside the context of of capitalism and Marxism. In the in the twentieth century, in the late twentieth century, uh, around nineteen sixty or so, there was a movement of of countries which they. They proclaimed themselves to be the non-aligned bloc. These were countries, uh, India, Egypt, Yugoslavia, Ghana, a few others. And they wanted to forge a, a path independent of either capitalism or Marxism. But they failed. They, they usually, most of them usually ended up uh, more or less aligned with the, the, the Soviet Block. They were politically more favorable to the Soviet bloc, and they really couldn't forge some kind of alternative. Interestingly enough, at that very same time, there was a philosopher in India by the name of Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar, P.R. Sarkar, and he put forward a theory which he called the progressive utilization theory. And basically, this is an economic and political philosophy that is not capitalism, and it is certainly not Marxism. It was, it was a system which was put forward as a way to solve the problems that were caused by the, the present models, whether they whether they were the, of the capitalist or of the communist variety. So let us look at this, this system and see what, if, what it is and, and if it could really address the current crisis that we have today. So I can give a few elements of it. In a, in a short video I cannot explain everything, but it, I can give the basic elements. First thing, which is really very important, that this is a spiritual view of the world. Maybe that's the reason why you're seeing an orange-clad yogi in front of you explaining it, because it, it does take some kind of a, a spiritual viewpoint to, to understand it and to enact it. So what is a spiritual viewpoint? It's not something which is beyond our capacity to understand. You don't have to attain enlightenment to, to get it. But the idea is basically this, is that, that this world, this universe, is a projection or an, a thought wave of, of the cosmic consciousness. And what that means is that we're all in this and, and we're here with, as a short momentary entity. We realize this anyway, that you're here for 50 years, 40 years, 60 years, 70 years, you don't know. And one day you have to pass from this world. And yet, even though we're here as a transitory entity, and as the, the um, people who hold this viewpoint, spiritual viewpoint would say, even we're just a thought wave, regardless whether we're a thought wave or not, we're certainly transitory in this world. And because we're transitory in this world, our claims to, to ownership, exclusive ownership, 
of things is, is kind of a um, ludicrous, you might say. It's like the, the ancient pharaohs tried to bury their, their wealth in their, with their bodies in hopes that they would take it with them to the next life. But we don't take anything with us. We're only here on this planet to utilize things. And the, the concept that, that such and such property has been given to such and such person for eternity, is this is only a, a construct, a human construct. It's not an absolute decree of, of, of God or of anyone, a cosmic entity, that, that, um, that this has to be. So our idea of, 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 of exclusive ownership has to be questioned. A better way to look at it would be that, that we're just all part of one cosmic system and that we're here to utilize things without holding exclusive, uh, undying, or infinite, or um, eternal ownership of anything. And within this context, then, we're here to, to utilize things for the best capacity, uh, capaci to our best capacity, and for the, the good and happiness of all people. So this is, this is a way to look at things in a, in a spiritual framework. Capitalism and Marxism were both materialist philosophies. Uh, Marxism exclusively materialist, and they, they proclaimed themselves as dialectical materialists. And, and they, they attacked any other belief system, whether especially religion. They said religion is the opiate of the mass. There's some value to that statement, but we'll, we can discuss that afterwards. But, but, but they even attack the idea of, of mind. They say that mind depends on matter, and, and, certain, and there is no spirit even beyond mind. Capitalism, on the other hand, didn't attack spirituality or religion directly, but utilized it to support its premises. But it too, it's a, it's a materialist philosophy. The idea is to accumulate wealth, uh, as much wealth as you can. And Marxism also was to, to, to produce more wealth, accumulate more wealth, use more wealth. But it's physical wealth, not spiritual wealth, certainly. And Marxism didn't give any importance to it. And, and capitalism, we say it gives importance to it, but, but in the end, it's the bottom line that counts in our present societies, and, it's, and, and that's the most important thing. It's not human welfare, uh, it's certainly not any high spiritual concept. So the idea of proud, the progressive utilization, is that, that this world is, is like a thought wave in the cosmic mind, and we are here as entities to utilize things, to, to utilize things together as if we're as a joint family. This is a very important concept, a joint family. If you live in a family and your mother and father are still around, you don't start to um, say, well, this thing is mine and that thing is mine and this part of the house is mine, the silverware is mine and, and, uh, and the um, television set belongs to my older sister or, or the, the car belongs to my older brother. Everything we utilize, everything is one. We're a family. It's only if the mother and the father pass on then there may be a dispute about the, the property. So what Proud says is that the mother and the father, the supreme entity, the supreme progenitor, 
is is around, is still is eternally around, and we're here only to share this world as a joint family. So this is a, a concept that may or may not be easy to accept, but but it's something that we should think about. And on this basis, and on this basis of, of this kind of utilizing this world as a, a joint family, then then Proud attacks or addresses the problem of how to organize the, the society. But this, this um, way is also based, there are some principles. You have to have principles if you're going to, to, to do anything in this world. So what are these principles? One of the principles is that the society should guarantee the minimum necessities food, shelter, clothing, education, and medical care to all people. This, is, this should be a right of, of people. We often talk about you know, the Bill of Rights, and we have right of free speech and free assembly and, and right of religion and uh, these political rights. But, but here we're talking about economic rights, the right just to, to survive. And so what is, what is Proud doing here? We say there should be a floor on the economic house, and nobody should should go through this floor. It's a, in fact, it's a it's a it's our shame if, if there's somebody in our society who dies of starvation or or dies because of lack of medical care or who sleeps outside, um, who uneducated. This is our not our to our glory. It's our shame. So the society must. Uh, guarantee this to, to all of its people. This is the floor of the economic house. We're proud, and this has been talked about many liberals or social welfare people, eco economists have always spoken about this, but where proud breaks a new ground is that it says there should also be a ceiling on the economic house. A ceiling means that there should be a cap on the accumulation of physical wealth by, by the members of the society. The free accumulation of wealth, the unlimited accumulation of wealth by a few people, results in the misery of many people. And this is a situation in the world today that, that wealth has, has uh, been concentrated in the hands of very, very few people. Uh, and, uh, and, and the result is a a society where there's also people who don't get enough, and it's a society where the whole structure of government has been distorted with um, wealthy people buying the government. So Proud says no individual should be allowed to accumulate any physical wealth without the permission of the society. So there should be a ceiling on the wealth. Then. Also, how to distribute wealth. There's, there should be some principle of that and how to produce it. The idea in Proud is that there should be maximum utilization of the resources of the world. And these resources are physical resources, the normal resources that you see of the, the forests and the trees and the, and the minerals and the soil, um, but they're also resources beyond that, that the, the beauty, the aesthetic beauty that we get from, from things also has to be valued. And even there are spiritual resources of, of this world too. Uh, 
you, you wouldn't want to convert a, a church where people have prayed for thousand years into a, a billiard parlor. You know, it's the, the vibration of that, the sanctity of that place should be respected. So we should make maximum utilization of the of the mundane resources, the super mundane or aesthetic resources, and even the spiritual resources of this world. And they should be distributed in a rational manner. Now what does rational manner mean? Under capitalism, we see that they're distributed according to whoever can take them um, most efficiently, and it may be somebody will have many things and, and somebody could even end up with nothing. Under the ideal of communism, although not the practice, the ideal was to have e equality and each, each according to his uh, need and, and the idea of everybody is basically equal. Um, but the concept here is rational distribution. Rational distribution means that things should be, first of all, the minimum things should be given to people or, or, or supplied according by giving purchasing power, and I will discuss that shortly. And then the surplus things, what to do with the surplus. In every society, there's always going to be this extra wealth beyond the minimum. How should this be uh, apportioned in a way that will help be fair and help the society? So rational distribution means that surplus goods should be given in such a way as to inspire people who have made meritorious contributions to the society. So for instance, in a society where uh, only a few computers could be produced, that was the way it was you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, when there would be, it would be an extreme luxury to have your own personal computer. So in such a society, the, those luxurious items should be given to scientists and doctors and people who could utilize them. And then as they became more plentiful, then the ordinary or other people would get them. And then those meritorious people, how would we inspire them to do more? Some new item, which is also in short supply, should be apportioned to them. This would be rational distribution. It's not equal distribution, but with the other principles in place of, of guaranteeing the minimum, it will be fair. And regarding um, how should the items or physical things be apportioned, for instance, the minimum, should we write a check to people at the end of every month with their, you, okay, here are your minimum necessities? No. But we should supply purchasing power through full employment, and, and full employment which provides adequate purchasing power so that people will have the, the be able to get those minimum necessities. But, but society has to arrange that. So in the present society, we find scarcities of, of labor and, and people are, are chasing after jobs. Literally, they, they go to other countries to get these jobs. And we want to make a society where the jobs will chase after the people. So this, is, this should be our object. But there should be rational distribution of the, of the resources of the planet. So this guaranteed minimum and rational distribution and maximum utilization, these are, these are some of the, the fundamental principles upon which this kind of system would sit. Now, 
how to do that, how to bring that in place, and what would such a system look like. Here, we can bring in a concept which basically we can just define in two words, economic democracy. Economic democracy. In the past century, and even up to the present day, there was a, a tremendous um, storm and clamor for, for political democracy. Like the US went to World War I with this, under the slogan, let's make the world safe for democracy. And, it, and also at that same time, uh, and it just shortly after them, Woodrow Wilson proclaimed there should be self-determination for countries, and then the League of Nations was formed, and, and then later on in the century, uh, African and Asian nations, which were, had been colonies of the European countries, got their independence, their political independence. And so, yes, we wanted to make the world set everywhere. People are claiming, yes, we must have democracy, let there be democracy. But democracy doesn't always give you your rights in this world. You may be able to vote for your president or your prime minister, but you don't have any vote whether you're going to have your, your job next year, because those jobs are not um, under your, your control. You have nothing to say about them. You're a hired person. So this is, uh, especially under capitalism, like that, basically the, the prevailing form of, of um, management and ownership is the corporation. So what is the corporation? The corporation is more like a system, you can say, of absentee ownership. You know, like if you live in a house and the landlord lives there, that's good, he'll take care of the house. But if the landlord is an absentee landlord and lives in another city, then that landlord may or may not take care very well, and um, it's, it's not such a good thing. So, and corporate, corporate owners, who are they? They're the shareholders, and they're, they're absent. They may live in another country. Some years ago, I was listening to a BBC broadcast, and the, the problem was of um, the plight of, of workers in an automobile factory in England, which was going to be closed down by a board of directors in Frankfurt, because a German company had previously bought that auto company. So, so that vote was in the hands of, of absentee people, people living in a foreign country, but they're the shareholders. So what, does, what do I say about it? What does this system which Sarkar put forward, this proposal of Proud, says, no, we should reorganize the society to give people their rights regarding the, uh, their local economy, their, their jobs and their livelihood. So how to do that? Sarkar envisioned a three-tier economy, three tiers of the economy, three parts. One part would be private ownership, as we have today, but this part would be confined to small enterprises dealing in non-essential goods. But enterprises which deal in, in, in essential things like food and shelter, clothing, education, um, basic necessities should not be strictly in, in the hands of individual or, or private ownership. For these entities, for most of the, the mid-sized entities, 
the idea was that cooperative ownership should be there. And what is cooperative ownership? Cooperative ownership is where the, the people who work in an enterprise are also the owners. They have a share. And those, those worker owners would vote in elections and they would elect board of directors and their, the, the managers. And this is the cooperative system. And it can be applied to, to a large variety of, of, of enterprises all except the ones which are, are huge in scope and also have a profound impact on society. So these, what are these? These are the, the key industries, which would be transportation, communication, defense, and some, some basic minerals, and you know, energy production. Uh, these, these are key industries. And these key industries should be under public management, either through local government or through local boards, but not through central government. So this three-tier system is, 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 is a way to bring about economic democracy because most of the enterprises would be organized as cooperatives and people would be able to vote for them. So this sounds easy on paper, but it will, it will require, it will be uh, a revolution. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a, it'll, I hate to use this word because you know, people get frightened, but, but it's, it's a revolution in the sense of a fundamental change. This revolution doesn't mean blood and guts, but it means fundamental change. And sometimes fundamental change is, is a necessity and, and there's, there's no way around it. When, when, when the rights of people are, are continually violated and and continually denied and society heads towards a, a brink, then fundamental change is needed. So, so this is the, the economic context of, of, of the story. But economic democracy also means more than just uh, changing the corporate forms. It also it requires a new way of organizing economies. In the world today, most places, we have concentration of not only wealth in the hands of a few, but in, in different regions. Cities become rich, the countryside remains poor. Countries in the northern hemisphere become rich, countries in the southern hemisphere are impoverished. There's tremendous disparity of, um, of wealth according to, to regions. So economic democracy also means we should have decentralized approach to the economy and we should have a balanced economy. A balanced economy means that within a, a particular nation or, or area or, or economic unit you should have industry, agriculture, service, service industries, industries providing the, the materials for agriculture in a balanced way. Presently Economists like to um, promote uh, globalization and free trade as the, the solution to, to economic problems because globalization means the enshrinement of a principle which is dear to economists called the principle of comparative advantage. Basically, this principle is that if someone is very good in one thing, and much better than another country, 
it's better just for the for the one the country which is good in that, let's say producing manufactured goods, that country should just specialize in that. And the other country which is not good in manufactured goods should forget about it. Just they should specialize in agriculture. And then by the trade, the mutual trade, then um, wealth will be um, maximized. But this works nice in theory, but in practice what it means is that the, the manufacturing countries have become wealthy and the countries only dealing with their special sending raw materials out and, and things which, which they don't add value to, they become impoverished. So the idea here is that this should stop and that different regions of the world should develop in a balanced way. Like we have this expression, banana republics. Yeah, there shouldn't be banana republics, but the countries should also develop manufacturing sectors and, and service sectors and agriculture. And if they have to develop a manufacturing sector, they should be allowed to protect it while it's growing. Uh, they should be allowed to protect it while it's growing. Countries which we would laugh at, you know, they're manufacturing today, then we won't laugh tomorrow. We used to laugh when we found the goods that said made in Japan in, in the 50s, when we saw that on the bottom of a we turn it over and we look at where it was made. Made in Japan, we would laugh at it. You know, it means cheap imitation. But nobody is laughing today. So we have to allow uh, countries around the world, regions around the world, to develop in a balanced way. And much of the dispute of the United States and Cuba, well, it was rooted in the Cold War, but it was also the, um, the Cuban idea is that they didn't want to become uh, a place just where... Um, Rich people will come to spend, gamble, and, and do prostitution. They wanted also to develop their economy as they f saw fit. So, so this is a, a huge thing that we have to allow um, rich countries so have to they have to give up their um, idea that they're going to dictate what happens in the other countries of the world. And so there has to be real democracy in that sense. The countries of Africa got their political democracy in 1960, but they didn't get their economic democracy because they, they, uh, they got their political freedom, but they didn't get economic freedom because they're not free to help to develop their, their economies as they want them to. So this should be allowed. And within countries also, there should be a balanced uh, approach to development so that there will not be a concentration of of, of particular enterprises in one place and then nothing in another place. There should be jobs in one place and no jobs in another place. So this would be a new organization, a decentralized economic approach. And this decentralized economic approach, um, whether it be applied within a country and if it would be applied with also a, a reorganization of, of enterprise in, in in, in three tiers, with some private and a good portion portion in 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 uh, cooperative, and the largest uh, enterprises which are not amenable to cooperatives in, in public hands, then this could could allow um, a fair amount of wealth, and it could be and, and even increasing amounts of wealth. You know, one thing which has to be made very, very clear when we talk about a system like Proud. I have not used the word yet, but I can say people will use the word socialism. 
in one way, this is, maybe you could label this a type of socialism. If you want, you can use that word, sure. It, of course, it doesn't allow people to, um, to, to uh, accumulate as much as they want, so there, there are social limits of it. Use that word if you like, but one thing is very important. Even if you use the word socialism, it doesn't mean to make or collective system. It doesn't mean a collective system is to make everybody poor. In the United States, where I'm sitting right now, that people think of socialism and they think of, um, oh wow, yeah, we'll be put in um, camps and everybody will be wearing Mao jackets, you know, gray jackets, and, and we'll be eating um, porridge, you know, thin porridge, and, and, and that's, that's what socialism means. But look at it this way, it means a system which is based, one of the principles which I didn't mention is that the system of li standard of living should rise in every, you know, successively age, you know, it should rise progressively. So it's a system which will produce a good amount of wealth and that wealth will be shared fairly and, and the system will, will gradually increase the, the prosperity of everyone. It doesn't mean to bring everyone down to a low common denominator. It means rather to, to lift everyone up to the highest point possible. But this is a very important uh, point to keep in mind. And I want to go finally to the last thing I want to mention today, that, that this, the enactment or the implementation of, of these measures, let's say for economic democracy, for example, um, to bring about um, guaranteed um, minimum necessities for people or, or to, to make any structural adjustments in, in the economic system depends on one important factor, which is tied to the first thing I mentioned, I mentioned a spiritual worldview. But what is, is needed um, to bring about anything great in this world is the proper people to do it. Without the proper people, even, even a noble idea will be um, perverted. For example, although you know, people here in America or in the West are, are likely to view communism or, or Marxism in, in a very terrible light as a you know, demonical um, theory, its proponents were not demons and not devils or not bad. The, the people who formulated the theory, they had good idea. They, they, had saw, the, the, uh, they saw the problems caused by capitalism. They saw the inequality. They saw the deaths caused by the, the babies um, dying at the prison gates in, uh, in the early capitalist factories. There was no childcare, no anything, no care. They saw people dying of, of starvation, of, of, of neglect, of lack of medical care and they put forward their theory as a way to address this. But when it was enacted, it was enacted by people, and those people um, had their own greed and their own um, same defects of people everywhere. And so the many so-called communist systems had, had e elites with more... It's like that, that old... Um, joke from Animal Farm, you know, that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal. The parable of Animal Farm is, the, is, the, is what happened. So even an idea which comes with noble purposes cannot be enacted 
unless there are local people doing that. Then we need to to make proper changes in the society. We need ethical leadership, moral leadership, spiritual leadership. I will say, spiritual. Why? What do I mean by that? The idea you can have a humanistic idea in your mind, but that idea of humanism of altruism, of love, is not intellectual. It needs to be nourished. Nourished. It should never die. And that nourishment comes from a spiritual practice, of internal spiritual practice, which will remind you and will remind me that we're not a sack of skin and bones. And that behind this I feeling, I exist, there is also an I of I know. And that I of I know is our soul, is our, our spiritual source, and is the place of love and, and of bliss. And only people who are in touch, people who are in touch with this on, on a constant basis, then they, they will never forget um, their place in the society. And such people can be entrusted in every society, there have to be management. Even in a cooperative, you have to elect a management. But that management should be honest. And in the society, we have to elect. A, there have to be some government, and that government should be honest. But that government can't be honest if the electorate isn't honest, if the electorate isn't noble, the electorate isn't moral. So, so the whole foundation of this will rest on, on also a sea change. In, in, in people, we have to we have to become better. We want better. We said yes. We want the best government. We want the best system. But to 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 deserve that, to get that, we also have to be better. So, in a nutshell, this is the proposition. We have a crisis in this world, and this crisis is a systemic crisis. It's caused by. Um, an economic system which is based on just the strongest and the shrewdest and maybe crookedest grab as much as they can and others have to fend for themselves. And the solution which Sarkar first put forward in 1959, which I'm, I'm restating here, is that we need a system based on a spiritual worldview, a worldview in which we view this universe as our common um, property and that we work in a collective fashion to ensure that, that all individuals will have their, their uh, life of dignity. That's what we want, the life of dignity. Not only the minimum, but they, they should thrive. Um, they should thrive psychically and spiritually and have their their freedom to live. We want we want a prosperous world, but we want that within the framework of, of a system of collective social responsibility. And we can do this if we will also work on ourselves to become better examples. And if we we take these um, some of these policies and principles of of economic democracy, of of decentralizing economies by allowing balanced regional growth around the world and reorganizing the economic structures of the, of the world so that 
is the maximum participation of the stakeholders. So in a nutshell, this is the progressive utilization theory. And when I first heard about it in 1970, I became inspired. And I still am inspired and, and optimistic. And I, I'm sure that once people investigate it, they will adopt it and, and society of the future will enjoy the fruits uh, of, of the great thought and great um, insight that's gone into this theory. I'm sure that, that the crisis which I speak about today, which I began my talk with, will be overcome.